to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I'll be joined by my wonderful co-host, Sarah Marshall, momentarily. Today, we'll be talking about Heathers with Kat Kinsman. But first, I want to let you know that You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies is made possible with your support. Thanks so much to everyone who supports us on Patreon at patreon.com slash you are good. If you support us over there, you get bonus episodes. Our next bonus episode, I've talked about this a little bit, is about Center Stage. That should be out very, very soon. Our last bonus episode before that was about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Who knows what our bonus episode will be about after Center Stage. We've talked about some things, but what do you think it should be about? Let us know. Let us know what you think would make for a good bonus episode. Typically, I don't know, we cover all sorts of things, but you know, often we'll cover movies that have more of a niche audience than the ones that show up in our primary feed. So yeah, we'll be doing that soon. Keep an eye out over there and let us know what you think would make for a good Patreon bonus episode. Thanks so much to everyone who supports us there. We really appreciate you helping us make this possible. You Are Good is also made possible with support from Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory, a commercial and creative video content production company with offices in Portland, Maine and Nashville, Tennessee, though they do work throughout these here United States. If you need that sort of work done, get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory. Finally, we release playlists that accompany each of our episodes. They're inspired by our movie choices. That's one thing, but they're also inspired by our conversations about the movies. So like we take the vibe of the episode and we turn it into a playlist. You can find that linked in the show notes. So Heathers is a 1989 American black comedy teen film written by Daniel Waters and directed by Michael Lehman in both their respective film debuts. It stars Winona Ryder, Christian Slater, Shannon Doherty, among others. And it portrays four teenage girls, three of whom are named Heather in a clique at an Ohio high school. And I was so glad, as we talk about here, to revisit Heather's and realize, I I think it's actually smarter than I remember it being. I remembered it being quite smart when I watched it originally. We were so happy to have Kat here. This is a delightful conversation, and I am so excited for you to hear it. So without further ado, let's talk with Kat Kinsman about Heather's. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Greetings and salutations, Alex Steed. <laughs> that was very good. I was wondering who you would channel, and if you were to channel JD, how much smarm you'd bring. It's not smarm. It's just like, I am young Jack Nicholson. <laughs> and I am. <laughs> Sarah, Sarah, what are we covering, and why is it, as you said, a perfect spring movie? We are talking about Heather's which specifically takes place in the time between spring break and the end of your junior year of high school. Mm. And this is about a high school in which people think that there is a suicide cluster, but actually there's a budding serial killer and his girlfriend. And that just feels like such fitting content for your junior year after spring break and before (laughs) summer. (laughs) 
And we have this movie because it was brought to us by Kat Kinsman. Kat, hello. You know, great pate, but I got a motor if I want to make it to this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. This movie is a language. (laughs) Yeah, it is a language. You know, I I have a very dear friend who used to be a colleague. So I'm a food editor by trade. Uh, We worked together at CNN doing food coverage there. And we had a lunchtime poll. And one day she came in looking kind of tired and she said, I almost texted you in the middle of the night to tell you I watched Heather's and now I understand what the hell you're talking about all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And why we're doing lunchtime polls. Yes. (laughs) The lunchtime poll is a fascinating enigma in this movie, I think. It is. And it's it's weaponized in a weird way, but it's also used as an insight to various people's character. It's such a litmus test for who everybody is and how they want to be perceived. You're striving who wants to get into the you know ivy league or you know the stoner chick who's just out there in the parking lot like what she's the person to be in this movie in the end that's how you survive (laughs) before we go too deep sarah tell us about what heathers is and tell us to the best of your ability about what happens in heathers i love this part of the show this feels like my like american ninja warrior challenge where i'm like okay and then i like run out and i have to you know run on the toadstools and jump on the yeah. It's funny that that's your read. To me, you always strike me as like a seven-year-old only child doing a play for the extended family. That's my energy just for everything I do. <laughs> <laughs> and we know this. <laughs> but I love now including that that seven-year-old is imagining a warrior challenge. <laughs> it's really hard, okay? There's a lot that goes on. You have to get context. You have to like mention who's in it. You have to do it in a relatively <laughs> timely fashion. I think it's very rugged. Yeah, I can't believe you pull it off every week. Me either. It's great. Yeah, so <laughs> do, do, do. Heathers is a 1989 film absolutely jam-packed with talent, including Winona Ryder, Christian Slater, Shannon Doherty, and Glenn Shaddix. It is about a clique of girls at a high school in Ohio. They're the most popular girls in the school, and their names are all Heather, except for Veronica, whose name is Veronica. And she is played by Winona Ryder, and so as with all Winona Ryder characters of this period, has this kind of like final girl in everyday life quality. <laughs> and I feel like people talked a lot about the fact that Winona Ryder had, was like a waif and everything, but I think to me the basis of her appeal is that she's got an old soul quality. Mm. Which like if you were any kind of old soul type kid or you saw yourself that way, you're like, yeah. She's got a monocle, for goodness sake. She has a freaking <laughs> monocle. Where'd she get that? The monocle store <laughs> in small town Ohio. Like she put effort into getting that thing. There's no Etsy in the 80s, you guys. But basically, we established the fact that Veronica could have skipped ahead to high school when she was in sixth grade, but instead stayed with her age group to focus on her social development and now is friends with this clique of girls who are all named Heather. There is Heather Duke, who is played by Shannon Doherty, who is always reading Moby Dick, which is a fascinating choice, partly because they couldn't use the catcher in the rye. But why would Moby Dick be your second choice? Anyway, (laughs) Heather McNamara, who's the cheerleader and who wears yellow to signify that she's cowardly. Heather Duke wears green to signify that she's jealous. And Heather Chandler, who is the leader of the Heathers and wears red to show that she's the leader. She's an Aries. Yeah, (laughs) she so is. And she's a giant bully to everyone. And so we show the Heathers initially... At lunch, so we establish the school, the cliques. 
I like that this movie has a pretty real looking high school, like it looks lived in and not sort of beautiful and pristine the way I think they often tend to now. And they're doing the lunchtime poll, which they never explain. They're just like time to do the lunchtime poll for the newspaper and the meanest, most popular girl in school wants to do it every day is my understanding. And so we establish everybody that way. And that's how we see that a new kid has come to town and he is Jason Dean. He's a combination of Jason Voorhees and James Dean is my theory (laughs) because he's a rebel without a cause and he's very cute and vulnerable and he needs to be loved. And also he's a killing machine (laughs) and his mom's dead just like with Jason. So there you go. And, People often talk about how you couldn't make this movie today, and I think that's the wrong approach. I think that you could make this movie today, but should you? No. And one of the clearest examples of that is that we establish JD by showing that these two jocks are hassling him. These jocks were like horrible guys and are shown to be like awful homophobes and everything the whole movie. And who are like... 30-something, I'm sorry. Yeah, totally. As everyone is. Yeah, everyone is just like... Haggard, uh, except Winona Ryder and Christian Slater. Yellow Heather is 35. Yeah. Biff, whatever that guy's name is. Curtin Ram. Yeah. Yeah. Ram's a real middle-aged man. He's a hard 30. Totally. The Biffs. Yeah, exactly. The Biffs. Yeah. So the Biffs are hassling JD. And so he pulls out a gun and appears to shoot them both. And then we smash cut to the Heathers playing croquet and talking about how he'll just get suspended because he only fired blanks. So this plus Raising Arizona portray like a really distant time in American gun culture. He's just terrorizing us with blanks. It's fine. It's fine. It's not like that's a thing that could really happen where he would load his gun with real bullets and open fire in a school or a record store. I mean, it's not like this represents a real possibility. So whatever. Empire Records, directed by a Canadian. It was definitely pre-Columbine because JD would not have been wearing that uh, trench coat that he's wearing for a good part of it. No, he'd get suspended for the trench coat. That was a thing. Yeah. We established JD. We know he and Veronica are meant to get together because like the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, this movie takes color coding for characters very seriously. And he and Veronica both wear a lot of black. And so that night, Veronica and Heather number one, Heather Chandler, are on their way to a college party. And Veronica runs into JD at the convenience store. He buys her a slushie. It's really cute. I first saw this when I was 15 and I was just like, oh, my God. Christian Slater. Oh my God, Christian Slater. Oh no, he's a mass murderer. But on the other hand, oh my God, Christian Slater. And like, <laughs> it's this is not one of those things where I don't get it anymore. I'm like, okay, yeah, I get it. That makes sense. Good for you, young Sarah. So they have this fantastic chemistry, I think. And then she goes off to this college party with Heather, which is horrible because we have, I think, a really well done sequence where we basically show... Heather Chandler being pressured into a sexual act with a shitty college guy. And then we cut away from it and then cut to her in the bathroom, basically gargling some water and then spitting it at the mirror that she's looking at her face in, which is just like, we know nothing good happened for her in there. You know, Mm. it's just like one little moment, but you're just like... Heather Chandler is in pain. That's the thing. And it, it gets like passing moments of pain 
beautifully yeah. when there's that transaction where where Martha brings the note to one of the jocks yeah there's all these like little beautiful passing moments of people hurting which which is a beautiful summary of high school in retrospect yeah this movie is like suspended somewhere between like 16 candles and welcome to the dollhouse which is a really good place to be <laughs> may I say one thing about that lunchtime pulsing did carnation milk sponsor that scene because good god they all have practically quarts of milk on their trays when she pours the milk at heather's house it's a half gallon of carnation i was like i've never seen carnation in someone's (laughs) fridge just for drinking but that's cool (laughs) i grew up right across the river from ohio in this exact time period milk was there at lunch all the time but these were like double size <laughs> that they had there. Those were big milks. And they were framed really prominently in every single shot. Yeah. And I was trying to figure out like, okay, what does this stand for? And high schoolers don't drink that much milk. Like little kids, I think, are forced to drink milk. But I love the idea that Carnation was like, we need to get in front of the edgy <laughs> kids. There's a movie about a suicide pact that is actually about a serial killer. We are sponsoring this movie. <laughs> I mean, look, it is the only brand of milk I associate with Winona Ryder, so <laughs> it works. That's great. Nailed it. Yeah, and the thing, thank you, that I forgot to mention is that in the lunchtime poll scene, Heather also decides that they need to terrorize Martha Dunstock, who they call Martha Dump Truck, because she's fat, and that's just the basis of her being terrorized by the entire school all day long. And so we also establish, importantly, that Veronica is good at mimicking other people's handwriting. So they have her write a note from Kurt or Ram, I forget. Kurt. Kurt, revealing his interest in Martha. Yeah, and then she takes it over and asks him about it, and it's horrible and painful. And then the children continue wearing blazers and drinking milk, because that was what they were doing at the time. To prepare for Ronald Reagan's Star Wars. (laughs) And so at the party... Basically, Heather goes through this like non-consensual sex rite of passage and Veronica doesn't. And that's essentially what they confront each other about in the hallway. And Veronica's like, let's leave. And Heather's like, no, we have to stay here with these shitty guys from whom we derive status. And then Veronica pukes on the carpet and leaves and Heather chases her out and basically is like, you were nothing before I elevated you. And on Monday, you'll be history and you won't be worth anything at school anymore. And so Veronica goes home. She angrily journals about how she needs Heather to die. And then JD shows up and they play strip croquet and have sex on the lawn. And this time watching this movie, which I don't think I've seen in like eight years, which is emotional, For the first time in my life, I was watching it and I was like, you know, I don't think they really played croquet or at least not a full game because the (laughs) click of croquet balls is really kind of like a crisp and not that quiet sound. And I feel like that would have probably woken up her parents. And I was like, Sarah, (laughs) stop it. They did prominently place a mallet and two balls on the edge of whatever thing that was in a very deliberate <laughs> That's great. I've never noticed that. I noticed it actually for the first time today. And, nice. And, oh, my God. I think the croquet balls were blue. That's great. Now that I'm thinking about the color coding. That's great. Yes, guys. I think that was the case. That's great. And that's also Veronica's signature color as well. She has like blue and then also gray and black, but... See, there's so much going on here. We should have a Room 237 style documentary about (laughs) the subliminal messages and Heather's. So they have sex. It's great. It's just like a very big fan of that moment. 
because it's like a movie about like, yes, it is about killing people. But before that, it was about having sex on purpose as an enthusiastically consenting teen girl. And what a great thing to see. Hmm. And, you know, if if we're in the Christian Slater land, you know, a, a year or so later, he may pump up the volume where also there is a teenage girl who takes agency there and takes him outside to bone. Exactly. When we covered that, I think that was like exactly half of our conversation was about being like, Samantha Mathis fucks on her own terms. Great job. Chris Kinslater has sex on the lawn. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There should be a trilogy of these. That's his brand. Yeah. (laughs) So they have sex. She basically tells him, you know, about just what is going on with this poisonous high school hierarchy and how she basically feels like. Heather is single-handedly reigning the school with a horrible iron fist and that if she were gone, everyone would be better off. And so they go to Heather's house the next morning. Veronica understands with the intent to make her puke in retaliation. And JD is like, let's feed her Drano, essentially. It's hull clean, but it's like, we all understand it to be Drano, I feel like. And... Veronica's like, no, let's give her milk and orange juice. And JD, without Veronica knowing, tricks Heather into drinking the Drano, telling her it's a hangover cure. And she dies and crashes through her glass coffee table. And then Veronica's like, well, fuck. Oh, my God. Didn't see that coming. And JD's like, yeah, what a surprise. Well, better write a fake suicide note. You know, the basic thrust of the movie is like what happens when someone horrible dies and then their legend gets transformed completely and people see them completely differently and see all this humanity in them so the school goes into mourning for heather then jd we don't know what he was up to before he got to town he and his dad move around a lot because his dad is a professional demolition man but he at this point jd's like let's just keep murdering popular kids So after Veronica goes on a double date with one of the other Heathers with Kurt and Ram, which she leaves early because they just want to tip cows. And then Kurt and Ram are one of them. I forget who make up a story about having a sword fight in her mouth. And it's so funny because (laughs) in that explanation, the primary act described is them rubbing their dicks together. Good point. Good point. And that's so funny. And it plays into the theme later, but like it's a terrible brag. Yes. But it's a funnily clumsy brag on these two idiots' uh, parts. It's a great point. And she's being so slut shamed yes. by Country Club Courtney, which is her actual name. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Country Club Courtney. Get it together. And they're just like a, from across the room. They're like, we heard. And it's like, <laughs> I forgot. High school is horrible. <laughs> Okay, so Veronica is like, ah, this is terrible. I hate these guys. And so JD's like, here's what we'll do. We'll surprise or I don't know who originally pitches this because we just cut to her calling one of them and arranging for this to happen. But what JD tells her they're going to do is she's going to meet Curtin Ram in the woods behind the school at dawn. And JD tells her that they're going to scare them and fire blanks or fire these Ikluga bullets he has. 
which is German for I'm lying, that will just break the skin and make them bleed a little bit and make them pass out. And Veronica is like, yeah, I'm 16 and it's before the Internet. So sure. And so they ambush Kurt and Ram and shoot them. JD shoots the first one and Veronica realizes that it's a real gun with real bullets. The other one gets away. I cannot tell these guys apart. Then JD is chasing him down and Veronica shoots him crucially in the chest and they've already put together supplies to make it look like a secret gay love suicide pact. Because they had bottled mineral water. Because they had mineral water. That's how you knew. Because this is before anyone hydrated and they were like, if you hydrate, we know. Well, you drink milk when you hydrate. You hydrated with milk <laughs> yeah. in the 80s. Yeah. Okay, so there's an issue of stud puppy, a Joan Crawford postcard, <laughs> a mascara and mineral water, which JD then unpacks to say, this is Ohio. If you don't have a brewski in your hand, you might as well be wearing a dress because he talks like Jack Nicholson the whole mm-hmm. damn time. He sure does. You can't handle the truth, Veronica. <laughs> <laughs> She doesn't want to, man. She just wants somebody to do her dirty work. Yeah, there's a little bit of Lannister energy here. So basically, at this point, you know, she knows what's going on. And then the movie kind of pivots and becomes, I mean, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of themes. So at this point, the movie becomes the My Boyfriend is a Murderer movie. And the school has gone mad for suicide at this point, we go to Curtin Ram's funeral where we have the most iconic line in the whole movie, which Alex is i love my dead gay son Mm -hmm. which i say out loud or in my head at least once a week i don't know i can't explain why is it as good as it is can we can it be explained is it just art you know it worked to the point where i had a a little frog and that frog died and i just kept saying i love my dead gay frog (laughs) (laughs) my frog raul Raul. know that there's absolutely no way that he would have expressed probably wouldn't have said love he probably wouldn't have said any of these kind of things when it needed to be here but like in a cultural context like when i was in school at this you know particular point the prevailing attitude was like the worst thing that you can be is gay (laughs) and i was watching this recently and thinking back about you know a friend who came out after this but you know he was one of the boys he was all this kind of stuff and you know absorbed every single thing of this because he knew it was the absolute worst thing you could possibly be called so for a father to you know say those words out loud at that particular point was seen probably in that kind of community as something like really brave and thoughtful but the man didn't have the guts to you know, express any kind of kindness, you can just very clearly see where that attitude came from. Right. I think that it's the funniest line in the movie because it's the only line that's delivered earnestly. Hmm. Yeah. And again, like, you know, as Kat just said, like, you know that this dad would not have been supportive had the son been alive mm-hmm. and he learned any of this. But like, yeah, there's something about it being hilarious, especially like in the context of like him next to the preacher after the line was delivered, to, like the limperous line, like everything about it is perfect. I don't know why, but the first time I heard it, I was like, this is in me now. Yeah, those, those little breakthroughs, you're absolutely right with that, where it's like, you know, genuine emotion being expressed by adults to the yeah. adult student, not come well here no no, definitely not particularly like before like 2010 disaffection and irony as a language 
you know, was very popular, very prominent for a super long time. But then you also through that had the advantage of never having to be seen or look at yourself. Yes. And there are these several times in the movie where Veronica is seen. She's seen by the little girl. She sees herself in the knife reflection when JD like cleans hmm. the knife later. And he's like, can you see yourself? And she does see herself. Like there are all these parts where the like artifice of being a Heather and the artifice of being like a disaffected sort of pre hipster, basically they have to look at themselves and, or she has to see herself in one way or another through someone else's eyes or through some reflection. And those are the times when like she has to start figuring out her shit. They and I are, are disaffected Gen X eye rollers. <laughs> right. It's how we were taught to be, but whatever. Right. Yeah. Things are, are not cleanly said because, you know, we were not taught to express our emotions by the silent generation who raised us. <laughs> it is that. So everything is couched in an eye roll and it's not real until it's real when they're poking in that body and you see the the handprint showing up on Kurt or Ram's lifeless body. You know, those visceral moments really come through. Yeah. Right. Alex, what you were saying just made me realize that this movie and Reality Bites are both about Winona Ryder, Gen X icon, being paired with a guy who's also a Gen X icon, but is like two Gen X yeah. and has to either become less Gen X or die. She was like the Nancy in Nightmare on Elm Street who had to like survive Freddy, but Freddy was just Gen X. Like she had to like survive. Yes. And then also like represent it in some way. Really, that's fast. That's fascinating, Sarah. <laughs> okay, so to bring us around to the home plate, the school is now obsessed with suicide. Kurt and Ram are dead. And what I was going to say about why I think that scene works too is, I mean, kind of building off of what you guys were talking about, that like, I think when you're a teenager, there's an attraction to being extremely unsentimental about stuff. And I think JD is right. Whoever's dad that is like would be acting differently if he had a an alive gay son. But also I think now as someone who's sentimental and fully an adult, yes, JD, that is probably true. But also like humanity is bigger and more complex than that. And like, it's not that like the way he would react with the alive son is real and the way he's reacting with the dead son is not real. It's that they're both real. Mm -hmm. And that somehow feels, I don't know, like the perspective I've gotten to 15 years later or however been 20 years later, leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> so after Kurt and Ram die, Martha also attempts suicide and no one cares because she's not popular enough to have a heartrending suicide attempt, which just feels very true to the world we live in. And Heather Duke, played by Shannon Doherty, her star is rising and JD is helping her to amass power for some reason and also wants her to circulate a petition to get Big Fun, the band with the hit single Teenage Suicide Don't Do It, to appear at the prom. <laughs> Teenage Suicide parentheses don't do it is like the funniest fucking pop culture joke that it plays throughout this movie. It is so funny. <laughs> yeah. Would anyone like to sing it? Just me? Teenage Suicide <laughs> Don't Do It! <laughs> She blew up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and Martha, I believe, is wearing a big fun. Yes, yes. she is. She is with a suicide note pinned to her shirt. Yes. She's so oh practical. Yeah. <laughs> oh, 
justice for Martha. Also, yeah. the moment where Martha is sitting alone in the basketball court, I guess, and is drinking her soda and then it falls on her face. Like, that's another beautiful little moment of sadness and hopelessness. Yes, it is. The school is getting all this media attention as well. And basically, Veronica is getting more and more freaked out about her murderer boyfriend and decides to fake her own suicide based on the theory that he will immediately come over to her house, see what he takes to be her dead body and confess all his plans to her, which he does, which just proves that she knows him really well. Mm. Yeah, love is like that sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) And so he basically, he's like, I was coming over to kill you, but I loved you. Which, when I was 15, I thought was very complex. And then he's like, well, I was going to plant a bomb under the school tomorrow and kill everyone. But now you're dead and your mom's coming up the stairs. So, okay, bye. So, basically, the climax of the movie... If I were to invent a complaint about this movie, it would be that we talk a lot about prom, but we never see a prom. And I think if they had a bigger budget, they probably would have had this showdown happen at prom. But it's at a pep rally, so who cares? It's, this is good, too. That's interesting, because like I feel like the symbol of taking down a pep rally, mm. which is described by that guy as being like, basically like, they suck, but they get us out of class. Mm-hmm. And even like, like Smells Like Teen Spirit, the music video, like right. the Gen X single icon has like a pep rally in it. I felt like right. it, it felt like very intentional. Mm. They loomed so large. I was a cheerleader turned goth. Hell mm. yeah. Well, we'll talk a lot about that later. <laughs> so the reason that you use the pep rallies to me in this is because there's so much noise that is going to be ah. generated. They're going to be in the bleachers and they're going to be stomping their right. feet. So that is exactly why there's going to be a cover up. If something pops, it could just as plausibly be something else. That's why they don't hear when she shoots his middle finger off. That's why they don't hear that. Because you cut to the teacher or the principal right. yelling over that. Yeah. Sorry to take down your theory, Sarah. I think it's a good theory about the prom. And I would have loved to have seen the prom in this universe. But I think pep rallies is intentional. I think it's good to like attempt to find <laughs> fault with this movie sometimes. Just to see how that doesn't work out. <laughs> All right. End of movie. Veronica and JD have a confrontation in the boiler room, which is another nice Nightmare on Elm Street crossover event. He has a bomb. She shoots off his middle finger, which is incredible marksmanship, I think, for someone who doesn't even know if Ichluga bullets are a real thing. Especially for the caliber of gun she is wielding for her, like, 103-pound frame. It looks like a Dirty Harry gun. What is that? Yeah. (laughs) And there's no kickback on these things. She has a 357 <laughs> Magnum. Yeah. <laughs> she would have like turned his hand into dust, but that's fine. Everything's great. I would love to see just one action movie with like realistic guns. Like, so someone has like an assault weapon or whatever and it stops firing after like eight right. seconds or however long that takes. It's <laughs> just running so hot. <laughs> My plot question here, too how did she get that? gun from was did he leave it in her car i I couldn't figure out how she actually i assume jd just a gun falls out of his pot it's like how i am with scrunchies i bet (laughs) yes and so she shoots off just his finger by itself disarms the bomb apparently by shooting it and then she thinks she's gotten things all sorted she goes outside and then jd appears and he is going to blow himself up and has 
a speech about how basically like, sure, I'm a murderer, but it's because nobody loves me. And face it, the only place where people of different social groups can really get along is in heaven. (laughs) It's really it's like quite a speech. I still really like it. And he says, I wrote it down. It's the kind of thing to infect a generation. It'll be a Woodstock for the 80s. And basically, he's like, I don't want to live anymore. This is it. I'm done. I want to die and take everyone with me. And Veronica is like, no, thank you. And does she disarm something again? Or is he just down to only his personal bombs? I think it just blows him up at her. Right. So he blows himself up at her. And I think he takes the bomb that had been in the basement that she had frozen and then strapped it to himself. That's right. Because and then, of course, we get the scene where he's decided that he's like he's reactivated it. He does his Christ pose. He spreads his arms out. He's ready to go. And then it malfunctions. Then he's like, ah, crap. And then it goes (laughs) as he's trying to fix it. And then Veronica responds to her boyfriend doing his Christ-like suicide, like, don't you want to join me thing by putting a cigarette in her mouth, which I think is a great way to draw a boundary. And then after her boyfriend explodes, her cigarette is lit. So she goes inside, (laughs) sees Heather Duke, takes her scrunchie, kisses her on the cheek, says there's a new sheriff in town. Mwah. And then she finds Martha Dunstock and says her prom date kind of flaked out on her. So does she want to rent videos on prom night? And Martha delivers what I would argue is the second earnest line in the movie, yeah. which is, I like that. And then they play K Sera Sera, roll credits, end of movie. I love that. <laughs> it's justice for Martha. Justice, like in a world of Heathers, be a Betty. Yes. Be a Betty, be yeah. a Martha. In a world of Heathers, hang out with a Martha. Yeah. Like, I remember loving this movie when I had it on, like, VHS and, like, I watched it a lot. It was, like, such a part of my teens and stuff and then a part of my early 20s. But I hadn't seen it since then. And I was, like, seriously questioning whether or not it was good. Not if it was good, but if it was mean-spirited. That's what I couldn't remember was I was like, is this one of those parodies or sort of a commentary saturated movie the under the guise of that is actually pretty fucking mean which i think is mm-hmm. like actually like a lot of what happened in the 90s like south right. park still doing it mm-hmm. there's that but i was so happy to re-watch this and be like no like this is this is <laughs> there are parts that are confusing and i could see there being a fandom that is fans in the wrong ways sometimes but i love what this movie did and I love like the love that I don't know much about the making of it but I love the love that seems evident in making this movie and like the love Mm -hmm. for Winona Ryder and the love for people again like you go through high school and how even like if you think about like pre-school shooting proliferation how could you not be driven to think that sometimes like it's such a cruel and weird place that some people would be better off dead Mm -hmm. and then how would you not get wrapped up in the weird you know psychosexual drama of being involved in like all the things that this movie portrays I was happy to revisit it and not be let down and actually be made happy by by how, how great it is. Hearing those slurs, the homophobic slurs, mm-hmm. is a shock 
to again to my like gen x system where those words were wielded Mm. those were absolute cudgels that were, were were wielded at people and the intent with which the movie uses them is very clear because they do not come out of anybody kind's mouth and these people are seen as absolute mm-hmm. just idiots for using them and having this this point of view but those words are still such a shock to the system to hear that it still has that power all those years later mm-hmm. to have that and people nobody questioning them all the every single adult in this fails except for one brief speech during which veronica's mother tells her like sometimes life just sucks man but every other adult there is a mm-hmm. hypocrite they're trying to use the grief counselor the guidance counselor is trying to use this for her own gain oh my god yeah <laughs> there was sort of like no more moment that felt like my father than when veronica's parents see the guidance counselor on tv and they're like look that's the flake that we met at the orientation <laughs> <laughs> in a cleansing first of synchronicity camera showed up at this rally where everybody's holding hands <laughs> <laughs> Class pause. I love. Oh my god, I love that. I love it. Cat. I was just talking yesterday about how every ten years it feels like there is some moment that launches a bunch of new youths into goth in one way or another. And this is specifically about a conversation about the Crow soundtrack. But like ten years prior or less, maybe five years prior, is, is around when this movie came out. And I feel like that was probably the best time from a pop culture perspective to be into goth. Like, how did you get there, and why did this movie speak to you as someone who is oriented in that way? You know, I am very open about the fact that I deal with mental illness. Have my entire life, you know, first started noticing depression. I I didn't have the words for it, you know, Mm -hmm. when I was, you know, in kindergarten, but it, you know, got the vocabulary for that later. And I was always just, I knew that I couldn't look like the other girls. The representation of how the girls in this film look is so spot on the giant sprayed up hair the you know the 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 blondness of a lot of it all of that is incredibly accurate I you know was a little kid with a mentally ill mother who you know didn't always sort of know what to do with a daughter and grooming and things and kept my hair very short so I was always misgendered Mm -hmm. as a kid and I just I knew that I didn't have any hope of assimilating. So I decided to just, you know, not try to do that. And I went pretty inward trying to deal with all the things that were around me. I knew that I had different physical feelings than a lot of people because I was dealing with anxiety and depression. I was, you know, constantly just super nervous and I read a tremendous amount. And, uh, you know, I had this, this moment when I was really pretty young, when I heard the Pet Shop Boys West End Girls for the first time. <laughs> and something about that hit me and I was like, this is the first time that art feels like it's for me. Yeah. My dad was always so encouraging of artistic pursuits, always really supported, you know, and my parents never judged me for any of this. And I found myself fixating on all these sort of anti-heroines. And Winona Ryder was actually used as a way to smack me because my best friend of me had seen Lucas where Winona Ryder is not glam. Mm. And she's like, you look like that girl. You are that girl. (laughs) What an insult. (laughs) And at the time, like she played this super gawky, weird kid who was quote unquote, really ugly. Like, you know, in the same way I Mm -hmm. I was. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, she, she manifests later as Winona freaking Ryder. But I just found all these things just really appealed to me. And, you know, I grew up amongst my peers 
they were just developing in this other direction that I knew was not going to work for me. I was a cheerleader because I didn't make the basketball team. Yeah. And I, and I started to meet a few other kids who were like me. Um, I was in Catholic school. Nuns are super goth. Being scared of nuns Mm. is super goth. Mm. Nuns are the most goth, aren't they? They're all married to a dead guy. <laughs> Truly, yeah. there's so much dead back there. They're witches, basically. Right. <laughs> and some of them have fields of baby corpses hidden in the yard. There's so much. And, and a, nun did, a nun tried to strangle me with her bare hands for, oh, uh, shit. Oh, for something my friends had done. Uh, they were being uh, loud in the library, and she came up to me and said... Uh, how's my little sweetheart while she was putting her hands around my neck and she just started oh pressing God. in harder and harder came home had handprints on my neck oh my, God. oh my god my dad was like what the hell and called the convent and uh you know they they denied it and or said oh it must have been a love tap offered me a summit with the nun which i did not take <laughs> do you want to sit in a room with the extension of state power that tried to murder you <laughs> So, you know, all these dark little moments that I found to be hilarious in various ways. But you yeah. know, you're still trying to, when you deal with mental illness, you're trying to figure out a way to, I was called tap dance and sparkle. So nobody really knows. And the, yeah. you know, sort of apotheosis yeah. of that is being a cheerleader. So did a lot of that. And then, so all my other like classmates were having these very formative teen things. And I was at home alone painting in my basement. And so I was already on a different trajectory. So when I got back Mm -hmm. to school, I felt fundamentally different from everybody else because I'd just been doing different Mm -hmm. things, reading different things, listening to music, doing, you know, all, all of that stuff. And I just sort of felt somehow bulletproof, like, okay, I've been away from all of you, you know, doesn't matter like whoever's going to be kind to me. That's really great. I was not afraid to speak up for myself anymore. And as soon as I started hearing Things like The Cure, Depeche Mode, it just hit my sensibilities. It was just like more, more, more for me, please. And that very fundamental summer between junior and senior year, I went to a thing in Kentucky called Governor's School for the Arts. And you meet all the other weird kids from all the other high schools. Mm. And I thought, I am quitting the cheerleading squad. (laughs) But I was also able to go back to school. And I somehow developed an emotional radar to pick out the other kids who were struggling. And, mm. you know, talked about it some and they were able to come to me and talk about it, including the really popular girls mm. who were mm. really struggling with this. And so it was a thing where, like, they wouldn't necessarily invite me to a party because I was like the, you know, kid with the dog collar on and the hair spiked up and the, wearing the black mm. clothes and, you know, all this stuff. So our friendships weren't necessarily public and they, you know, we weren't, you know, besties hanging out. But they'd come to me and tell me about their depression, their attempts at self-harm there you know all these things and i was kind of the holder of secrets mm. and that makes you hella goth so when i saw this <laughs> film you know and i thought i knew i was probably going to go away i went away to art school after this and i thought i'm never going to see all of you again just bring it on and it mm. struck me in that way because like you know obviously i didn't have the fantasies of violence or anything but to see see a comeuppance of some of cruelty was important to me did not want it to be yeah. so violent <laughs> as that mm. but the fact that they went there really spoke to me and they you were talking about it's a language they invented their own slang for this so it wouldn't be dated Mm -hmm. i love that 
This movie does feel like a John Hughes movie told through a series of like Cure or Bauhaus songs. Although it's like funnier. I would argue that I now know that these people had mm-hmm. senses of humors about themselves, but I didn't know that then. And so like, it's definitely funnier. And you're, you are more charitable than me because like, I feel a lot of that experience that you're talking about. But like, I honestly, like I wasn't homicidal, but there were certainly people in my school that if they died, I would have been like, I'm not sad about that. You're a fucking cruel asshole because I wasn't thinking about how they ended up that way I was just thinking that like that's directed at me or my friends you make my life terrifying I don't want to kill you but if I found out you died I wouldn't shed a tear Mm -hmm. Sarah what initially spoke to you about this movie and what continues to speak to you about it I felt and feel that it takes teenagers seriously and Maybe it's nostalgia, but like I don't find this dialogue at all obnoxious. And like we all have a personal line about this, but like it's very interesting where we place the difference between like this dialogue is obnoxious, no one talks this way. And people don't talk this way, but like this feels like an authentic expression of what this characters are feeling and doing. And also I'm really enjoying it. I mean, A, the dialogue is really sharp. I love the way it's written. It's very funny. And the language just feels like very alive and full of verve. But also probably the key thing is that it comes from character and the characters feel very real. And the characters, some of them are being very astute about what they're observing. You know, there's a sense, basically all of the adults are either incompetent or out to lunch or just actively trying to screw over the teenagers And I remember that feeling so clearly from when I was that age. And I think that that maybe is what feels the most time capsule-y about coming back to this is the feeling of like, yeah, there's all these adults who are in charge of us and who are controlling where we go and who we're with and what we do all day. But fundamentally, like something in them has numbed. They are communicating and apparently living in a world of cliche. And I am the only one who can see things clearly. And I am only a junior. The thing that it stands out about it now is that you can identify all of the problems and like exactly how everything's fucked up and exactly the ways that people are terrible, whatever, but like you just don't know what to do with it. Yeah. And there are so many things that you can interpret Winona Ryder's journey as throughout this, but like seeing it as someone who for like three quarters of the movie has no idea what to do with it. And in the end kind of doesn't know what to do with it aside from just like ask Martha to hang out and be like a kind person. That resonates now because like I think that there was maybe like eight years in my life where I thought I knew what to do Mm. and I'm back to not having any idea especially around the junior year as you're saying like I felt I could identify every single possible dynamic every single person I could read everybody I thought although they were very two-dimensional reads but I just didn't know what to do with any of that information I just felt kind of hostage to it yeah and there's um There's a Kids in the Hall monologue I love, which is Bruce McCullough's advice (laughs) on getting into show business. The whole thing is great. And it's like, move to the biggest city you can find, into the smallest apartment you can find, keep your underwear in a bowl in the fridge, and eventually it gets to watch your friends grow up and grow beards to cover their puffy, compromising faces. And I think about that line a lot. (laughs) I'm in this photo when I do not like it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And like, to me, that's kind of the knowledge that I've gained since I first loved this movie as a teenager is like, when you're a teenager, you know that adults are hypocrites and you know that you'll never be that way. 
And it's not that like you inevitably become that way and that's just the circle of life, but it's just that like you understand where it comes from. Like you, I think part of growing up is being like, oh, this is why this is how this happens. And it doesn't mean that I'm necessarily going to do it, but it means that I can see the whole trajectory. I can't just identify that it's something that happens to people at a certain point somehow. Can we talk for one second? Because this has been burning into my brain that JD, you know, obviously a monster killer, all these things. He never had hope because his dad killed his mom. And he knows it. He sure did. Prior to this viewing, I hadn't spent enough time appreciating whatever they created in that character. He is just beautifully sinister and their relationship is so great. There's all this violence. There's personal violence. Oh, and while the kid is being beat up, beaten up like outside the funeral, they're making him say that he likes to suck big dicks. But he's taking that. He's taking his power in that moment and he's trying to sort of turn it around and weaponize it right back. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just the most bizarre and painful moment. But like, I feel that all those nerd kids are going to end up doing okay like the movie had empathy for them because like yeah they were saying oh they're nerdy they're awkward or whatever but it but i felt like it also treated them as characters of intelligence Mm. they just wanted to be seen and to get into princeton (laughs) (laughs) which we get to satirize them for (laughs) i just i don't know it holds up in a way that i was really really surprised and my husband hadn't Mm -hmm. seen it since it came out and he watched it with me a couple years ago Mm -hmm. and so shocked to see how much of this formed us as weird kid he was a weird punk rock kid at his high school how Mm -hmm. much all of these you know meant to us to see ourselves represented in that way and to Mm -hmm. to be respected was such a huge Mm. huge thing for for both of us and like where do you feel the respect because i feel like i feel the same way and i'm curious about how that's identifiable Betty Finn. Mm. She and Veronica were, were best friends until she got adopted by the Heathers. And she's, I mean, icon here. Renee Estevez mm-hmm. wearing a little sweater. And I want to call, say they're cat eye glasses. Artsy looking girl yeah. who is smart and kind and doesn't hold it against Veronica. When mm-hmm. you know she had kind of dropped her, they get together, they play croquet. And she's a reminder to Veronica of who she used to be. And she's still just... She's so cool. She is like other people are making fun of her, but she knows who she is. She's being a little bit shy and saying, oh, my gosh, I'm still a virgin. And Veronica's like, you know what? That's okay. You know, you see you, I might seem glamorous and popular to you and stuff like that. But this is this is work. She actually early in the movie mm-hmm. identifies what she has to do. And she's like, it's like these are my coworkers and our job is being popular. I love that. And I mean, some of what J.D. was saying is. That, you know, there are, are, are all of these cliques at odds with each other who are being taught to torture each other for really no good reason. You pick, clearly pick the wrong way to deal with it. But the fact that that was stated out loud, that, you know, that the people are visiting this torture upon one another and the cycle will be repeated is really significant to me. And the hope that I have now as a person who, you know, was that age at that time is that. I see these people now who I was growing up with who are exactly the character's age who are incredible parents Mm. and they are breaking that cycle with their own kids. They see it when their kids are struggling. They see it when their kids are dealing with suicidal thoughts or 
actions or all of these other things. And they sit down and they now have language to talk with them about it. And that is the thing that gives me hope. We're supposed to be the generation that just rolls our eyes and doesn't care. And we didn't, we're struggling. We're not always great at, at all of this, but we're, we're trying. And I, and I, I really feel forward momentum. So I didn't maybe necessarily grok it at the time, what was going on about why I found this kinship, but seeing hmm. it later. And I wonder who amongst my peers, where I was the, probably the weirdo for watching this and watched it by myself, who among those maybe secretly saw it and loved it and just didn't feel brave hmm. enough to say it at the time. I feel like adulthood is like, among other things, the search for people to watch Heathers with. (laughs) (laughs) Is the secret of Gen Xers actually that like you care so much that it hurts and the world is so indifferent and cynical that like you have to pretend to be cynical with it, but really Gen Xers care the most? God, we feel. (laughs) (laughs) We we didn't have Tumblr. We had nowhere to put it. Like writing my, my little things. And then like in my eye rolly Gen X kind of way, I went to art school and ran a poetry series called High School Martyr Moment. Where we all <laughs> read the worst things that we had written. That's so good. It's armor, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if the macro culture is Ronald Reagan. Or George H.W. Bush, God forbid. Yeah, Annihilation, mm-hmm. Any Moment, dumbass action movies, like it, things that I love now with uh, some breathing room, but like not Ronald Reagan, sorry, yes. the action movies. But um, if like that's the macro culture, like you have to wear some sort of armor to be earnest if you don't have any other place to find your people. So like you have to find your people through some sort of armor and protect yourself and protect your earnesty. Oh, yeah. No, we had these shibboleths that we would use. So if I did mention to have some Heathers to somebody and they got it. Mm-hmm. In the same way that, you know, fuck John Cleese now, but, you know, I use Monty Python as a shibboleth to when I would meet kids from other high schools at academic competitions or things like that. And you drop the little reference there and they get it because you had to fight to get it. It's not like it was streaming anywhere. That's what I love about like goth and punk is like people will be like, well, it's its own uniform. And it's like, yeah, you fucking there wasn't a time for nuance. There was like what was and then there was what was not. And you would be what was not to relate to the other people. Like that's how it used to happen. Like that's an important thing. It's a badge on your your denim jacket or your leather jacket or whatever. Mm-hmm. You make a Douglas Adams reference and right. somebody <laughs> picks it up and you feel seen. Doesn't it seem like really weird that when you're 14, they're like, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to wake you up at the crack of dawn. Very important. We're going to take you to a large building while it's still dark. And then you'll be kind of supervised. You'll definitely be able to get in a lot of trouble very easily. But at the same time, you'll just be with a bunch of other kids your age, just sort of like bouncing around in there. And we're going to give you a ton of instruction on chemistry, algebra, trigonometry, Prussia. Oh, and also how to not get pregnant or to avoid having sex or to not realize you're gay. But in terms of like your emotions and anxiety and dealing with your family and just the business of being human, like you you have that under control. We're going to assume that you know what you're doing. I get nervous even talking about this because like I'm afraid that I will come off like a crackpot in some way. And I know that like mm-hmm. school's just kind of the best option considering we've made every adult have to work 60 hours a week. But like 
I think school's bad. It is bad. I think there are fantastic <laughs> teachers. I know many fantastic teachers listen to the show. I think like there are great educators. There are good schools in the world. Absolutely. But like, I think my childhood was as fucked up as it was in a lot of ways because we were just like, school's fine. And we put everyone in. It's like... <laughs> fucking the warriors like school is like the warriors yes. and it's emotionally at least if not physically often both it's bad and i can absolutely see how any one of the people created in this movie ends up where they are mm-hmm. because school just makes the joker out of all of us <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's one billion percent true. <laughs> if you're lucky, you have that teacher who sees you. And I was super lucky to have just a few of those who are like, I see you, girl who goes to the art room at lunch. I was that mm-hmm. girl and I went to prom <laughs> with that girl too. <laughs> I am Facebook friends with my favorite high school English teacher. I am too. I am Twitter mutuals with my favorite high school English teacher. Shout out to Miss Kent. <laughs> Miss McQueen. Like, shout out to the, the good ones. I really think like teachers are humanitarian workers in the war zone. And if it's not in like a physical mm-hmm. like war zone because it's a dangerous school, again, it's a psychological war zone. Mm-hmm. Just hats off. Not just because I'm like teachers are important, but like I can't believe that you can know what you know about school and go mm-hmm. and potentially save kids by being interested in them. <laughs> <laughs> and get paid $29 a year. Yeah, thank you. Blessings to like all of those people who like the, the teacher who slides you the book. Totally. The fact that like now we're weaponizing, you know, state laws to say what can and can't be said and like putting fucking cameras in schools so parents can monitor teach like it's bonkers. Mm. It obviously an instit- it's an institution that was built upon assuming that everyone works at the same capacity and everyone can achieve the mm. same sort of progress and same brand of it or whatever and did not consider that like literally every single person is very different and everyone is crushed under the weight of their experience. <laughs> Even if everything about high school were great except the time at which it starts, it would still be unacceptable in my opinion. <laughs> Just being tired for four years, you know? Like where you're a farmer. Like they were like, go. On top of everything else, you're like, well, you got to do the algebra at dawn or else, you know, the crops will wither in the harsh glare. You know, one thing I do like about this movie that feels prescient in in a way outside of it being quaint because like again like all the mm-hmm. gun stuff you're like this is quaint in a way because it definitely came from a time when we were like yeah. this is part of the, of the imagination. Is J.D is homicidal compulsively so it seems compulsively so and like that to me matches up with the like revisionist read on columbine Hmm. for a long time it was like Hmm. oh they were like bullied and like they were lashing out against the like it's like at least by the david cullen accounts who's written extensively about it for years like no, mm-hmm. like Eric Harris seems like he w- was looking to murder people. <laughs> like oh, It's not yeah. like it was like the geeks finally had mm-hmm. their day. It was like, no, this guy yeah. did a thing. And it spoke to a lot of people who went to high school and who were like, I could see wanting to do that. But what ended up kind of being the case was like he was a guy who was like, I can't wait to go to school and murder some people. When a geek snaps, they move away. <laughs> 
Right, 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 right. They go. (laughs) I feel like I shouldn't even talk about this without Candace Opera present, but I'm going to try and wing it. Um, This reminds me of the video for Pearl Jam's Jeremy. (laughs) Yeah. So I think that what happened with that video is that it's inspired by a real story that I think Eddie Vedder read in the newspaper about a student who had publicly died by suicide in a classroom in Mm -hmm. front of his peers. And so they made a video depicting that. And then it was cut based on request by, I assume, the FCC. And so the way that went was that it created an ambiguity where it wasn't clear whether it was about a suicide or a school shooting. Right. And, it, and that thing of like the revisionist read of Columbine and kind of talking about JD, like it feels like there's something very interesting about the fact that Eric Harris specifically seems to have been an anomaly to the popular understanding of homicidal impulse in teenage boys, maybe because a lot of former teenage boys or teenagers generally can just identify that feeling of like, I am explosive and there is violence inside of me and it will go into me or onto you, but it has to go somewhere Mm -hmm. and how that seems to be relatively common to some capacity and how what's a lot weirder and harder to predict is somebody who like has a fairly elaborate plan that they like work on very hard for a long time. Very well said. Thank you. All right. So there are some dads in this. We have a preppy sweater wearing spy novel reading dad, and we have a scary demolition man mom murdering dad. But pushing those aside, who is the daddy? Cat. Veronica becomes her own daddy. With the lighting of a cigarette, with the smashing of her abusive homicidal ex, with a fire extinguisher, Veronica becomes daddy that's fantastic totally the lighting of the cigarette sarah is nancy not being scared of freddie anymore yeah she's taking back every bit of energy she ever gave him oh my god i love it i have such a new appreciation not because i think that he's good in any way but i have such a new appreciation for jd's dad who is literally one of the dads in the movie yeah (laughs) what do you love about him (laughs) I don't know. It's like one of the pieces where like this whole movie is satirical in some way. And there are these moments of ebb and flow where, like I said, with the with the dad at the funeral who loves his dead gay son, the way that it achieves something is it leans outside of the satire and goes towards being earnest in Mm -hmm. an interesting like for a blip of a second. And like that blip and rhythm does something. But with JD's dad, it goes even further down into satire. Right. It's like they're emulating the leave it to beaver conversation. And there's the part where she says, like, do you even like your dad? And he says, I haven't given that matter much thought. There's just something about like what they're doing with that relationship that I can't even put my finger on, but I'll be thinking about it for a very long time. Yeah. My daddy for this movie is Winona Ryder because watching it this time around, you know, in the past few years, I think partly because of what we've learned about how Hollywood functions and partly also because this is what happens when you get older, if you're me, when I see actors, even even if they're not teenagers, just like playing teenagers, being in that age category in media, I feel mostly concerned for them because just thinking about like being I think Winona Ryder was you know 17 18 19 maybe when they made this and just like thinking about being a teenager already with that kind of star power already needing to steer a career of the scale needing to navigate a world of adults and also a world in which your value is measured largely by fuckability 
like just trying to have any kind of career at all. And the fact that Winona Ryder both was huge, which partly came down to her choices and largely didn't, but also that she was able to do it in a way that felt authentic to some kind of a real person and in a way that people watching at the time and still connect with. Like, I think that anytime an actress can do anything in an industry that brings her to a significant number of homes still as herself is incredible. Yeah, beautifully said. And I hope she likes this movie still. Kat, how can people find you? Oh, goodness. I am on Twitter at Kitten with a Whip. I'm uh, Instagram, Kat Kinsman. I, can I plug my book? Of course. No. <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> it's called High Anxiety, Life with a Bad Case of Nerves. And oh, uh, it's, you know, we talk a lot about high school in it. Uh, and it's about being an anxious person. And I swear, if I had a Tumblr, it would be my fandom of this podcast because y'all are truly, truly amazing and having the conversations that I would have, like, in my dark lonely teenage years I, I couldn't even imagine getting to talk about pop culture and the things I love with folks on such an intelligent thoughtful level uh, and and I just I deeply appreciate what y'all do oh, that's mm. so kind thank you so much so we're uh, we're you. all happy Harry Hardons yeah. Yeah, <laughs> 20 years later it's true <laughs> Let's all eat our cereal with a fork let's all talk hard <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much to Kat for being on the show. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the episode and making it sound so great. You can find Carolyn's music at carolynkendrick.com. Don't forget that we have a collection of songs that have appeared in previous episodes. The music of You Are Good, Volume 1, you can find on various streaming services and you can find on Bandcamp. Thank you so much to Miranda Zickler for editing this episode. Thank you to Fresh Lash for producing and providing beats that make the transitions on our show sound so great. Thank you for listening. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at YouAreGoodPod. You can find us again on Patreon at patreon.com slash YouAreGood where you get bonus episodes for supporting us there. And uh, and yeah, thanks so much for listening. We appreciate that you're doing this with us. Next week, we'll be talking nine to five. All right, everybody, you are good. Take care of yourselves. <laughs>